When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. This case is complex, and the complexities go much further than just the victimologies, suspects, and timelines. The crime scene itself is full of mysteries, contradictions, and layers that boggle the mind. In most cases, we have a single CSI report that breaks down all of the evidence in one nice, neat little package. But the Pinion Pines triple homicide isn't like other cases. The crime scene investigation was conducted by multiple people from multiple agencies. We have the fire department's initial arrival on scene and their observations. We have detectives documenting the outside of the house, the arson investigator working on the house itself, coroners and detectives sifting through rubble, and other officers looking through cars. What I'm going to try to do today is to bring some of those elements together to hopefully paint a clearer picture of what happened on September 17, 2006, on Alpine Drive. I'll be breaking down the observations of the initial fire department responders, the crime scene investigators' findings from outside the house and the cars. I'll be saving the arson investigation for another day. This is Season 12, Episode 6, The Crime Scene. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that he did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ford Ranger, a vehicle for all terrains and every passion. It's a workmate, a playmate, and to its drivers, a soulmate. So how do you improve the Ford Ranger? You go all in. The all-new Ford Ranger, the UK's best-selling pickup. Now available with rear bumper steps, tailgate workbench, and enlarged load box that can fit a Euro pallet. Go break it in. Search all-new Ford Ranger. Ford Pro. Driving productivity. According to SMMT data, features may be optional extras with additional cost. We're going to begin today at the beginning with the captain of the fire department, Jeff Williams. I'll be working with his trial testimony, which is posted on our website. On the night of the murders, Jeff Williams was stationed at Cal Fire Station 30, or the Pinion Station. Station 30 is located less than a half mile from the intersection where Pinion Pines Road runs north off of Highway 74. 
It's very close. To paint a mental picture, when you pull out of the Station 30 driveway and turn right, you have to go about the length of three or four football fields, and there you are at Painting Pines Road. On the stand, Jeff begins to break down the events of the night. And this is where we find out that the 911 call that RSLE Summerlee made wasn't actually the first call for help. William says that at 9.40 p.m., the actual landline in the fire station began ringing. Someone called them direct, and they were calling to report a fire in Pinion Pines. He says in the next minute and a half to three minutes, two more calls came in. He says that the fire engine was out the door no later than 9.45. He yelled at his guys to hang up the phone, and they got out the door. The surprising part of Captain Williams' testimony is that he's not working off of a report. He's working strictly from memory 12 years after the incident. So he says that they received three calls in the station, then went en route, and then later he says he's not sure when he was actually dispatched by the 911 operator. He doesn't even know if he would have heard it. Through an open records request, I was able to obtain a copy of the actual dispatch log from Cal Fire, and the times don't jive with Williams' testimony. According to the log, the first 911 call came in at 9.51 p.m. Now, presumably, this was Tim Summerlee's wife, Araceli. The log says that fire was dispatched at 9.53. In my experience, it's very possible that both of these accounts are correct. Williams and his crew may have already been en route when the official dispatch happened. But the dispatch log shows an en route time of 9.57. That could also be an error. I can talk more in the follow-up about the communication issues between fire crews and dispatch centers to help explain why. But for now, I think we kind of have to work with the 9.57 p.m. time as the actual en route time. But that's only because it's actually documented and it's not retold by memory. And I know I'm kind of talking in circles here, but this part's pretty confusing. So I just want to make sure that I give you all the information. Williams is very insistent in his testimony that he and his crew went en route before they ever heard from dispatch. In fact, he says that they changed radio frequencies when they pulled out of the station, so they never would have heard the dispatch. So if he's correct in his memory, he had already been en route for five minutes before the actual 911 call came in from the Summerlees. I'm giving you all this information because later it's going to become critical to know when the fire started. And unfortunately, like so many other things, even this element of the case isn't clear. Times aside, Williams begins to describe the trip. He says that it was a, quote, very dark night. So dark that someone on the truck could see the glow of the flames all the way from Highway 74 as they were turning into the community. He says that they were working off of map books to navigate his way back to the fire because the computer in the engine doesn't work up there due to lack of cell service. His description of the route is really hard to follow when he's testifying. He's using a laser pointer and not listing street names. He says that he knows they made a left somewhere and that they approached the scene from the west. So we do know that that means that the engine was headed northwest on Palm Canyon Drive and turned right onto Alpine, the opposite direction that Tim Summerlee approached from. But they had some trouble along the way. Williams testifies that they actually got stuck in an intersection on their way to the fire. They must have been able to back out because he doesn't say anything about needing a tow truck, but he does say a couple times that they got stuck. And that just goes to show you just how treacherous these roads were. Even when I spoke to some firefighters who currently work at Station 30, 
They told me that it's incredibly difficult to navigate Pinion Pines, especially at night. One day, a road will be fine, and then the next, it's completely washed out. Or a jagged rock would have become unearthed due to wind or just people driving over it for years and years. And it's pretty clear that Captain Williams definitely didn't know these roads intimately. In fact, at one point, the prosecutor asked him if he took the best route, and his response was, quote, Probably not at the time, but we couldn't see, end quote. He goes on to say, quote, All I know is off this road somewhere we made a left turn to get across and then went up and got stuck in a soft sandy corner, and that's it, end quote. He then confirms that the timestamp on the dispatch log is correct regarding his arrival on the scene. His engine arrived at the crime scene at 10.12 p.m. So the first fire truck arrived on the scene 21 minutes after the first 911 call. And based on his memory, about 32 minutes after the first landline call. That's a long time for an under four mile drive. And I'm not saying that to insult the fire crew. I feel for them, actually. I'm telling you that because it's important that you know just how difficult to navigate these roads really were. Part of what slowed Captain Williams and his crew down was a pickup truck. Now remember, this was a very quiet community. From what we've heard, most people that lived up there worked in the trades, and they all say that they were usually in bed by this time of night. And anyone that lived up there knew how bad those roads were. So what I'm about to tell you seems like something that's hard to imagine was just a coincidence. Minutes after the fire was reported, as the fire engine was working its way towards the scene, a pickup truck heading away from the crime scene nearly ran the engine off the road. Unfortunately, we never get a real good idea of exactly where this occurred. Williams doesn't know the street names and the prosecutor can't do anything but ask questions. Here's the exchange where they try to pin it down. The DA Smith is asking Williams where he encountered the truck. Quote, Williams, What's the name of this road right here? Smith. Sorry, I can't testify, so... Williams. When we made the left-hand turn off this dirt road to go west is when we encountered the pickup truck. Smith. Okay, about where on the map, approximately, did you encounter the pickup truck? Williams. One of these here, I believe. Smith. Show me again. Williams. Right, one of these. Smith. So you're circling one of these right here, is that accurate? Williams. Yeah, go down one more. Yeah, one of those roads in that area. End quote. I'm sure that's as irritating to you as it is to me. I have no idea why they didn't print the street names on the map for the exhibit so they could put into the record things like, let the record reflect, he's pointing to Palm Canyon Drive. But luckily, I do have a copy of Exhibit 220 that they're referring to when they're talking here. It's the map of the community, and we can see where there's an area that's circled in marker. Presumably, that's where the encounter with the pickup truck occurred, because we hear Williams and Smith talking about circling an area on the map. And if you read the testimony, you see at one point they even talk about it being a black marker. So it would seem that Williams and his crew encountered the truck around the area of Pinion Pines Drive and either Buckthorn or Rockwood Drive, which are both in the south end of the neighborhood. Here, Williams describes the encounter from the transcript. 
Quote, Coming up this way, we were making a left-hand turn. There was a vehicle that was eastbound from coming in this direction at us. We made the left-hand turn onto the dirt road, and this guy sped up coming towards us. And the width of the road was enough for, right as we were going to meet, was enough width for the engine. And this guy wasn't going to slow down. He wanted to, he, he wanted to play chicken. End quote. He goes on to say that the guy ended up just barely squeezing by them. The engine was blowing the air horn and the siren, plus the lights were going. And this dude not only refused to give up the right of way, but sped up and forced the engine off the road onto the eroded edge as he blew by. Now this is happening in this quiet neighborhood in the minutes following the first visible flame showing from the Friedley house headed away from the crime scene. But I do want to be fair and point out that when I say he's headed away from the crime scene, it was quite a ways away down towards Highway 74 where this occurred. They were moving in the general direction away from the crime scene, but I don't want to overstate the fact that it was coming from the scene. It could have been coming from anywhere between this encounter and the crime scene. But that being said, it's a hell of a coincidence. As Williams' testimony continues, he explains that he came face-to-face with the driver. He says that the vehicle was a small red truck, like a smaller Toyota-style pickup, he says, but not necessarily a Toyota. It was red in color, and the bed was white as he remembers it. And there was a single male in the truck. From the transcript, quote, Smith. When you say him, was there one person in the vehicle? Williams. Solo male. End quote. He says that when the truck was right next to the engine, the driver put his hands on the steering wheel and kind of pushed himself up to look into the engine, which was much taller. But unfortunately, 12 years later, he was unable to describe the physical appearance of the driver. So all we have is that there was a small red truck with a white bed driven by a male with no passenger who nearly ran the fire engine off the road heading away from the crime scene as the engine was heading towards it. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Captain Williams testifies that he arrived on scene at 10:12 p.m. Upon arrival, Tim Summerlee stopped him out of the road and talked to him for a second. Tim told him that there was a body in a wheelbarrow. He then pulled the truck up into the driveway and reported to dispatch that they were on the scene of a fully engulfed structure fire, which he goes on to explain meant that there was fire throughout the house and coming out of every door and window. 
And Williams did what any good fire officer would do, and he proceeded to attack the fire from a defensive posture, meaning from outside the house. There was obviously nothing that could be saved at that point, and therefore you wouldn't risk a firefighter's life by sending them inside to attack the flames. Captain Williams describes completing what he calls a hot lap, or what I used to call, in my neck of the woods, a 360. Which is exactly what you would think it is. As a policy, the first arriving officer on the scene, the default incident commander, should always be required to make a lap around the burning structure before deploying any tactics. This is both for safety and strategy reasons. You need to know if there's a power line hanging off the back of the house, and you don't want to be pulling a hose through the front door if there's someone hanging out a window yelling for help in the back. And as a quick aside, I gotta say that I found myself enthralled with this part of William's testimony. It's been a long time for me, but it really took me back to my previous career. See, a lot of you know me as being an arson investigator, and that was part of my job, but it definitely wasn't my specialty. This was my specialty. I spent years developing courses and teaching all around the country, and the main subject matter I taught was initial scene operations, fast attack command operations, strategies and tactics, and systematic risk management of fire scenes for first arriving officers. And for what it's worth, Captain William gets an A-plus as far as I'm concerned. His actions are textbook. Well done, Cap. As Williams is completing his hot lap, he comes across the body burning in the wheelbarrow. He says that the body was charred, there were active flames burning, and at that point he could still see that the body was female and she was wearing a shirt, but unfortunately no description of the shirt. He goes back to the engine and orders one firefighter to pull hose over to extinguish the body, and he orders the rest of the crew to pull another line and, quote, do your best to keep it standing. The problem the captain was facing, which he explains, is that he knew, because of the body in the wheelbarrow, that this was a crime scene. And he also knew that there was no saving the house. And because of that, he shifted his priorities to evidence preservation. He says multiple times that he didn't want the house to collapse because he wanted to preserve whatever evidence might be found inside. He also says that he knew right away he wasn't going to be able to. He didn't have enough water. William's crew was working what I believe was an engine or what some might call a pumper. The primary function of these rigs is to, you guessed it, pump water. They're full of hoses and tools, but they typically only carry about a thousand gallons of water. And he indicates early in the testimony that this was an older truck, so it could have carried even less, maybe even like 750 gallons of water. Best case scenario is that it might have been what's called a pumper tanker, which carries less hose and more water but that still only gets you up to around 1,500 gallons. That may sound like a lot, but when you consider a standard inch and three-quarter attack line sprays water at about 125 gallons a minute, a single hose can drain that tank in 14 minutes. Two hoses, seven minutes. And you can do the math as you go up from there. And in a large fire like this, you'd actually be using a two and a half inch hose, which flows about 250 gallons a minute. And with a fire putting out as much heat as this one was, you'd have to be hitting it with the excess of 2,000 gallons a minute to even have a chance of overcoming the fire. That would require a deluge gun, multiple large diameter hoses, and most importantly, a whole lot more water. To put it bluntly, that house was coming down and there's nothing Williams or anyone else in this position could have done about it. In a city setting, you would hook the engine up to a fire hydrant when you get there and you'd have all the water you needed. 
But in a rural area like this, you have to rely on several other trucks called tenders or tankers, depending where you live. They'll drop a giant fold-up kind of pool out by the road, and the tenders will drive by carrying around 3,000 gallons of water each, and they dump it into the pool for the engine to draft from. Then they make the long trip back to wherever the closest water source is to refill, and they do it again. It takes a lot of trucks and a lot of time. Remember, it took them over 20 minutes just to get up the road to the crime scene. And who knows where the closest water was. So in this case, it was way too late. During the night, the house ended up completely collapsing on itself, burying any evidence and the bodies that were inside. I don't know how interested you were in the firefighting lesson you just got. But there was a point to it. After thinking this through, it's pretty apparent that practically any house fire in this area is going to result in a total loss and catastrophic collapse. There's no such thing as a quick response and a quick stop on these fires. If William's memory is accurate, it took well over 25 minutes for his crew to make this less than four mile trip to the scene. And when they got there, they only had enough water for a quick attack on a small fire. The only circumstance that I can think of where a house might be able to be saved would be if it was a witnessed fire that was reported by the residents immediately and all the doors and windows were shut, then you might have time to get there and save the house before it flashes over. But in any other scenario, the house is going to be lost. And the reason that that's important is because we should be keeping that in the back of our minds. Because who might know that? Who might know that if they start a fire in this area, that there is zero chance that the fire department can get there quick enough to put it out and save any evidence inside? Is that someone with some inside knowledge, or was it just dumb luck? After he reviewed the dispatch log, Williams was able to testify that the roof on the house collapsed actually just 15 minutes after his arrival on the scene. And that's pretty much all the relevant information we get from Captain Williams' testimony. He helps to establish a timeline, but we're still left with some questions there. We learned that the response took at least 22 minutes from the time of the first 911 call, possibly longer. The truck got stuck on its way to the scene, and they were almost run off the road by a small red pickup truck headed in the opposite direction. And unfortunately, Williams wasn't able to clear up one of the big questions that we've had right from the beginning. When asked if the garage door was open or closed when he got there, he said that he doesn't remember, leaving us with even more questions. It was open when Tim Summerlee walked up to the house. It was closed at some point because firefighters cut a hole in it, and we don't know if it was open or closed when firefighters initially arrived on the scene. Next, we're going to move on to what is as close as we come to the main investigative report on the crime scene. It's written by Detective Ramirez, and it's only about 12 pages long. And I'll tell you that as I move through this process, a lot of the work that you're going to be doing this week is going to be looking at photos. Make sure you get on our website. There just isn't the kind of detail that I'm looking for in these reports, so we're going to have to rely on our own attention to detail as we work through the week. In some places, I wish the officers did go into more detail. Then in others, it's just there's not a lot there. The main bulk of the crime scene is in the house, and it was all burned down. But let's go ahead and get started on Ramirez's report. He begins with the discovery of Becky's body. He's interviewing the firefighters from the scene, and right away we find out that while Captain Williams knows his way around a house fire, 
some of the other guys on the scene that night probably should have stayed in their lane. The report says that three firefighters noticed that there were wheelbarrow tracks in the dirt leading up to the wheelbarrow from out in the desert behind the house. So they took it upon themselves to follow the tracks back what they say is about 200 yards north of the property. They also reported that they saw shoe impressions alongside the wheelbarrow tracks. This was good information to have, but it resulted in photos having to be taken of the bottoms of the boots of every firefighter on the scene that night. Luckily, the relevant shoe impressions were those of skater-type shoes, not big clunky fire boots. And they don't seem to have disturbed any of them. There are two distinct shoes that left prints in the dirt near the wheel tracks. Some beside the wheel tracks and some on top of them. We'll be getting into those later, but what jumped out at me right away is that none of the shoe prints matched Becky's. Police scoured the entire area in a grid pattern for hours the next day. And there is no evidence whatsoever that Becky ever stepped foot in the desert behind the house. Ramirez continues with his briefing with Williams. We learned that the fire was contained to the house in the attic above the garage. The garage itself and the contents inside didn't have any fire damage, which again makes the whole closed garage door thing an even bigger mystery. He writes that it was during his briefing with Williams that the Cal Fire arson investigator, Charlie DeHart, reported that they had found a second victim, who was later identified as Vicki Friedley, in the north side of the house in the laundry area just near the back door. Then the next day, during daylight hours around 10 in the morning, John's body was found in the kitchen area. Ramirez next describes Becky in the wheelbarrow. He says that the wheelbarrow was located about 70 feet north of the house. It was pointing south with the handles to the north, and of course we've already discussed the fact that the tracks came into it from the north. He mentions that he was unable to determine if the body was in the wheelbarrow when it was moved to that location, or if her body was placed inside of it where it was. Which got me to thinking, I wish they had done a little bit of experimenting. If I were there at the time, I think I would have rolled it over the soil empty, and then add an equivalent amount of weight to Becky's body, and I'd do it again. Then compare the tracks to the tracks found at the scene. See if there's a difference. Unfortunately, this wasn't done, so we'll never know. However, on my next trip to the desert, I will be conducting this experiment and see if it can be at all helpful. I'll try to do it and then compare it to what we have from the photos of the actual crime scene. Ramirez writes that the brand of the wheelbarrow was a true temper. It was red, steel, and with wooden handles. Becky's body was laying supine or on her back, with her legs hanging over the handle side of the barrel. Her head, torso, and thighs were inside of it. She was wearing Refuge brand blue jeans, rolled to just below the knees like capris. And then there's this next part, which is one of the first factors that led me to taking this case to begin with. The state's case against Robert and Christian hinges heavily on the fact that Becky was on a hike and was killed back in the desert. I'll explain why a little bit later, but it's very important for their case that she got killed in the desert. I already told you that there are none of Becky's footprints out there, but that's not the biggest problem for the state. The biggest problem is she's only wearing one shoe, and its match was never found. After a thorough search of the property behind the house, no one ever located her left shoe. I'll read you what Ramirez writes in his report, then I'll tell you what I actually see in the photos. 
He says that she's wearing just a right shoe, a white Globe brand shoe. The left shoe was missing, but the left foot had a white sock partially removed. So he, he pretty much got it right, except for the fact that her socks aren't white. The shoe is, but the socks are black. Everything looks fine on her right foot, but on her left, the shoe is missing, and the black sock is rolled halfway down her foot. I know hindsight's 2020, so I'm really not trying to bash on the initial investigating officers, but did they think to look for her footprints in the dirt path between where the wheelbarrow was and the freaking back door? There's no indication anywhere that they did. No photos, no reports, nothing. Now, in their defense, maybe that area was trampled by firefighters, but honestly, I don't see why it would have been. They approached the wheelbarrow from the truck, which was out in front of the garage. They attacked the house from the same truck going the other way. There's really not a good reason for there to be much foot traffic in that diagonal between the back door and where the wheelbarrow was. This is a big, big deal, and it would help so much to take us towards actually understanding what happened that night. We have no indication whatsoever that she ever stepped foot in the desert behind the house. But where the wheelbarrow was found was directly at the end of a path that led straight to the back door. The door where Vicky was found just inside. And she's wearing one shoe. Now, surely she didn't go for a hike with only one shoe. But the shoe wasn't found in the desert. It wasn't found at the end of the wheelbarrow track. So where was it? Where is the one place where it could have come off where you couldn't find it? Probably in the house that burned down. And the sock rolled halfway down her foot? This is just a theory, but I can definitely see her on the ground trying to crawl away from someone and them grabbing her ankle, pulling the shoe off and rolling her ankle sock down. But what I can't see is her walking around in the desert without leaving a single print getting killed out there then her left shoe disappearing into thin air hey guys it is ryan i'm not sure if you know this about me but i'm a bit of a fun fanatic when i can i like to work but i like fun too it's a thing and now the truth is out there i can tell you about my favorite place to have fun Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The rest of Ramirez's report is pretty anticlimactic. We learned from the fire crews that there was live ammunition popping off inside the house during the fire, and while sifting through debris, four guns were found inside the house. Two pistols and two rifles, and all were later to determine not to be the murder weapons. There were cans of gasoline all over the place, you'll see them in the crime scene photos, and a bottle of lighter fluid found. 
and there was no significant evidence found on them like fingerprints or DNA. Evidence techs did test for accelerants in the wheelbarrow, but when the report came back later, it's not in this report, but I've read that report, the results were inconclusive. They don't know if there were accelerants in the wheelbarrow, which isn't surprising because it's in the open air, it burned for a long time, it could have been completely consumed, and it's a wheelbarrow, so there's no soft material like wood or carpet or something for it to absorb into. And other than that, there were only three other items of significance found on this crime scene. With the house being completely consumed, detectives were left to investigate outside, and there just wasn't a whole lot there. Now, I'll get to those three items in just a minute. But first, the question we've been asking since the second episode. What was found inside Becky's car, and more specifically, were her work clothes in there? The cars were processed by Detective Eichelt and photographed by two other officers. There's a brief report on all six cars, which I'm going to post on the website for you guys to review. It's getting late for me. It's going on 1 o'clock in the morning right now on Thursday. So since I'm approaching deadline time, I'm just going to cover the Scion that Becky was driving today in the episode. The rest of the information will be in the reports on the website, and we can talk about it more on the follow-up and maybe next week. Now, the report doesn't go into much detail, so a thorough look through the photos is going to be more productive than what's written here. The report says, quote, Vehicle 6 is an olive green Scion four-door SUV type van. The vehicle is registered to Jessica Friedley, but apparently has been driven recently by Rebecca Friedley. This vehicle also appears to be in use frequently. Along with the Villager, they appear to be the two most frequently used vehicles. The Scion appears to be used very recently and has a cracked windshield as well as a circular crack in the windshield. From this vehicle, I collected item 207 which was a hardcover diary slash book that is addressed at the top as Becky's Journal. I collected a packet of photographs of military personnel inside and registration from the glove box in Jessica Friedley's name. Item number 207 was collected at 13.05 hours. Item number 208, also from the Scion, was from the back cargo area. Apparently Becky was in the process of moving, and so there were all kinds of items of clothing and pillows and bedding in the back cargo area. Among this, I found a biology book for school, and I took the inside cover of that as well, as a piece of notebook paper with phone numbers and notes handwritten on them. I collected item 208 at 13.22 hours. The final item was 209. Those were handwritten notes passed back and forth in class. I found the notes in a backpack in the back of the Scion cargo area. The notes talk about her moving, school, as well as her working at Denny's at Highway 111 in Monterey and Palm Desert. Those items were collected at 1324 hours. End quote. Now I had to wrap things up here for tonight because my head was about to explode when I read this. He only collected three items of evidence. A journal and registration, some pictures of some military folks, a piece of paper with some phone numbers on it, and some notes she was passing back and forth in class. You'll see in the photos on our website that the back cargo area was full and pretty neatly organized. He says there's a bunch of clothes, but there's actually a duffel bag that looks like it has clothes in it, but he doesn't describe what's in it. He doesn't photograph what's in it, and worse yet, he didn't collect it as evidence. So it's just gone. I know that Eichel didn't know about the call to Denny's, so maybe he didn't see a need to collect everything from the car. But for fuck's sake, a 19-year-old girl is burned to death 
30 feet away from her car. Everything is important. Everything. It's killing me that they left all of that evidence in that car, didn't document it, didn't photograph it, and didn't collect it. But I'll move on from that. There's no sense harping on it now. All we can do is work with what we have, and we do have a little bit to help us out. Because in Becky's car, there are two pairs of black shoes that we can see in the photos. One is a pair of skater-type shoes with pink laces. So I don't know if those would qualify as black shoes for work or not. But there's also a pair of black pumps. They're dressy shoes, and they have a heel on them. They definitely would meet the standards for the dress code at Denny's. But I'd like to see if maybe some of you ladies can chime in this week before the follow-up, particularly those of you who have worked in restaurants. Because I'm curious if it's reasonable to think that she would wear these heels to work at that kind of job. But as far as the clothes are concerned, we just don't know. We know for a fact that she wasn't wearing her work pants when she was killed. Her shirt was too badly damaged to know if she was wearing her work top. But we know that she had a duffel bag full of clothes in the back of her car. But we don't have any idea if the work shirt and work pants were in that duffel bag. So make sure you get on the website this week and look through these pictures and let me know. Get the discussion going on the fan page. Let us know what you found if you've picked up on anything that we haven't discussed here yet. All right. Now those last three items of significance. The first to me seems like it's probably a red herring. Near the wheelbarrow, a single spent shell casing from a gun was found. It's a pistol round. And it's definitely not from one of the guns that killed John or Vicky. But it appears to be pretty weathered. Police didn't seem to think it had any connection to the crime. And at this point, I tend to agree with them. Looks like it's been there for a while. So let's go ahead and move on to the second significant item of evidence. The linchpin of the state's case. A detective LeClaire followed the wheelbarrow tracks back into the desert from its final resting place. In his report, he's following the tracks and noting footprints on top and next to the wheel tracks. He notes that in his opinion, based on proximity to the wheel impressions, he thinks that the footprints were made by two people that were pushing the wheelbarrow or walking right next to it. And he does note that none of the tracks match the shoes that Becky was wearing. He says that he followed the tracks back approximately 165 yards from the final resting place of Becky's body, and there the tracks stop. So a few things to note here. There are no tracks indicating that the wheelbarrow was rolled out to that location around the same time that it was rolled back. There's a couple explanations there. One would be that someone was working back there, say transplanting trees or something, and decided to leave the work for another day and just left the wheelbarrow back there for a few days. And you get some wind, you get some rain, and a week later you go out and get it, and presto, you only have one track. And another possibility is that it was empty on the way out, and since it weighs less with nothing in it, it doesn't leave as deep of tracks and maybe they weren't noticed. I think that's possible, but honestly, in this desert sand and clay, and I've been out there and walked around, plus I've looked at all these pictures... It would have left some amount of track if it was rolled out and back just a few hours before it was found. I don't see any way it could have got back there and left nothing. But then there's this larger point. Where are the footprints leading to the point of origin out in the desert? Why do we only see footprints coming back, but none going out? And honestly, don't have an answer for that one. 
I want to make crystal clear how this is documented here in this initial report. It's important because I'm going to tell you now this narrative changes later down the road. We start hearing phrases like area of disturbance, but we don't see any photos of such an area. But let me read you directly what was found at the end of this track, as noted by the detective that found it on the day he found it. Quote, I located the end of the wheelbarrow impressions, determined to be the origination point since I was backtracking, about 165 yards north of the termination point. The area was desert wilderness. I searched the area and found a single business card lying in the dirt nearby. The card was unsoiled, which was unusual in itself. The business card was located 20 yards north of the origination point of the wheelbarrow. I retained the card as evidence and submitted it for fingerprints. I could not locate a wheelbarrow impression beyond the aforementioned origination point. End quote. So first of all, quick note, no area of disturbance, no note of any blood, there's no note of anything that looks like something happened at the point of origin. All he says is that it was at that point that the track stopped. But they found this huge piece of evidence. The business card he found belonged to Mary Widman of Pro-Life Catholic Ministries. And it looked like the type of card that would get passed out, like a bunch of people would have them. I don't think it was necessarily her card, but it was her name on it. The card was unsoiled, as he says, but it was kind of crumbled up. We'll get into this more later, but there are also indications that this card had been out in the sun in this crumpled up position long enough for the sun to have faded some of it. But the state's case will later completely revolve around this card. And this is where I think the blinders went on. But really, as awful as it is and as frustrated as we all are with what we've heard so far, I will say that the police were in a tight spot. This was a high-profile case. And there's zero evidence inside that house because of the fire. And then they find this needle in a haystack. Makes sense. Becky's found in a wheelbarrow. The wheelbarrow left tracks leading back to this point of origin. 20 yards away from the point of origin, they find a business card. They really had nothing else to work with. Except, as Colombo used to say, just one more thing. On the night of the murders, firefighters informed police officers on the scene that they had seen a green pen on the ground about three feet away from the wheelbarrow. Three days later, Sergeant Brandon Ford returned to the scene along with the arson investigator DeHart to discuss the demolishing of the house. When they arrived on the scene, DeHart informed Ford that the pen he had noted on the night of the murders was still just laying there on the ground. Nobody collected it. From the report, quote, Captain DeHart informed me the pen he had noticed the night of the fire was still located near the wheelbarrow. I walked to the wheelbarrow and collected the pen. Without touching the pen with my hands, I scooped up the pen in a paper bag and secured it in my car. I transported the pen to my office in Palm Desert, where I secured it in my office. I spoke with investigator Ramirez about the pen, and he said he did not collect it because he thought it belonged to the initial deputies on scene. I sent out an email to all deputies who initially responded to the scene and asked them if they had lost a pen during their response to the fire. All the deputies eventually responded that they did not believe they had lost a pen at the scene. After learning the pen was probably not a sheriff's deputy's pen, 
I gave the pen to Sheriff Service Officer Cunningham and asked her to enter it into evidence. End quote. The reason that Ramirez didn't bother about the pen on the night of the murders is because he assumed it belonged to one of the officers on the scene. And as you heard, Ford later discovers that it didn't come from any of those officers. But I'll say that Ramirez did have a good reason for thinking so. Printed on the pen was Riverside County Sheriff's Association, the union that all Riverside County sheriffs belong to. NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website truthandjusticepod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team. Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnick, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. 